I guess most of you noticed that we had a new singer on stage. Thank you, Ishita. It was magical. <laughs> no, thank you so much. By the way, uh, um, we're always inviting people. If you have musical skill or talent of any kind, we certainly want to let you help us out uh, leading in uh, praising, praising God. So please uh, talk to Horatio, talk to Karen or myself. Uh, if you ask ten different denominational theologians, um, what you must do to be saved, you might get ten different responses. Some might tell you that conversion is found in a ceremony. Some might say that it's found in an ordinance. Some might say that you can find salvation in a sacrament or becoming a church member. Some might say that you can find it in a properly worded uh, confession, a properly worded prayer, a properly worded statement of faith. You might get a host of answers if you ask ten different denominational theologians. Every so-called Christian denomination has its own distinctive formula uh, with one or more unique aspects. If you read your Bible, you understand that it is one long invitation from God to fallen man to come to Him. It's replete. You see it over and over and over again. And the interesting thing about it, as you read the Bible, you realize that many of these invitations differ um, from each of the other invitations. Obviously, there are some that are alike, but many of them differ greatly. And I want to just give you a few examples from the Scripture. I'm not going to give you the Scripture references here. If you're interested in those, let me know. I'll send you my notes. I'm not going to give you the Scripture references here. But these are some examples of what Scripture says you must be do to be, what you must do to be saved. You must choose life. You must call upon the Lord. You must seek the Lord. You must enter the narrow gate. You must deny yourself. You must become childlike. You must believe. You must receive. You must repent. You must obey. You must love Christ. You must give up everything. And I could go on and on and on. And I love it. <laughs> and I'll tell you in a minute, but I love, I love it that God's done it this way. I love it that God's done it this way. I love what American preacher, pastor, author, theologian John MacArthur says about this. He says, every time you look at an invitation uh, to salvation in the Scripture, it's different than every other invitation. Now again, you can find exceptions to this, but what MacArthur is saying is true in the main. There's great variety in these invitations from God to fallen man to repent and believe and to be saved and to become a Christian. They just differ from, from one degree to another and I love that He does this way. You, you, know, you know why I love it? Because it defies, it defies formulation. As I said to you, you go to different so-called Christian denominations, and you'll get different answers on what it means to be saved, what it means to be converted, what it looks like to be a Christian. You'll get different answers. I love it that God has done this. You can't put, you can't put genuine born-again salvation in a formula. You can't do it. You can't do it. I love it that God has done this in His Word. God conceived, designed, 
and effective salvation, it defines religious and denominational formulas. It's too big. It's too mysterious. It's too awesome. It's too supernatural. No man who calls himself a pastor or a priest or clergy or whatever, no man has a magic key or a magic prayer or a magic sacrament. God makes Christians. I know you've heard this many times in here. God makes a Christian. If I thought it was up to me to make a Christian, I'd still be an accountant. I would have never become a pastor because I know I don't have what it takes to make a Christian. I'm not clever enough or glib enough or... Um, anything enough. God makes Christians. It's the work of God. You guys know what Jesus told Nicodemus over in John chapter 3. Let me just read a few words. John 3, 3-8. Just a few excerpts. You know, the religious man Nicodemus came out to Jesus. He thought he had crossed all his T's and dotted all his I's. And probably he had crossed all his T's and dotted all his I's. But Jesus said, you're nowhere, man. You're nowhere. You're nowhere with God. And then Jesus said this, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless you're born again, you cannot see the kingdom of God. Do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear the sound of it, but you do not know where it comes from and where it's going. So is everyone who is born of the Spirit. I was talking to someone earlier this afternoon. <laughs> Biblical Christianity is supernatural. It just is. Now I know that the denominations have tried to dumb it down and stuff it into a formula. And they, they tell you, well, if you'll do these three things, you're a Christian. Don't ever doubt it. That's what I was told when I was a young man. <laughs> Although I can tell you firsthand, I wasn't even close to being a Christian. I didn't care really anything about Jesus. I knew I should you know, go to church on Sunday and I should tip my hat to Jesus and I should throw a, a dollar in the offering plate if it suited me. I knew these things. Uh, he was a religious icon to me. I did not know Him. I did not love Him. I had not given my life away to Him. It was just denominationalism is what it was. And some man who could not see my heart promised me I was a Christian because I prayed the magic prayer. Beloved, it's just not so. It's just not so. Jesus says you must be born again. It's a miracle. I can't do it. No priest can do it. No one can do it. Only God can do it. I love it when God highlights the sovereignty his sovereignty and the salvation of His people. And I love how Jesus drives the point home there in John 3 that man can no more manage a Christian conversion than he could manage the wind. It's simply impossible. I often ask Christians when I meet them for the first time or second time or third time, whenever it's handy, how did you become a Christian? And I get all kinds of... This is just a really fun thing to do. You should start doing this yourself. You get all kinds of really weird answers. Um, but I remember one, one woman who passed through the International Church of Milan. She said, you know, 
And I love this. I just thought it was so perfect. She said, you know, at, you know, Jesus just didn't used to be very interesting to me. And then He was. You guys know what I'm talking about? He was just like some religious icon. And now I know Him. I remember a man that passed through here. He said, Jim, he said, you know, he said, I was raised in the church. And he, he was a lot like me. He said, I was raised in the church. And, and, uh, but you know, I, I didn't really... I didn't really know the Lord. I didn't really love the Lord. I, I hadn't really given myself to the Lord. I wasn't seeking to be His disciple in the world. He said, I was just a church member, and then it changed. Then it changed. The wind blew through, right? John chapter 3. The wind blew through and everything changed. And I'll tell you just very briefly, I, I was raised in the church. Um, I was there every Sunday. My dad was a deacon. My mom was a Sunday school teacher. Uh, the tradition I was raised in, when you're eight or nine, you're supposed to become a Christian. You're supposed to pray the prayer and you're supposed to get baptized. That's just how it was. That's what you were supposed to do. So since my dad was a deacon, it seemed right for me you know, to do the right thing. So I just did what kids did in my tradition and I prayed the magic prayer and I got baptized. But it didn't mean anything to me. In 1983, I was 28 years old and a man was reading the Scriptures in Sunday school class and BAM! The wind blew through. You know, it's a good thing to come to church. Cool stuff happens at church. I walked in that church that morning. I wouldn't have give you five cents for Jesus. Now, I acted like I would. I, I, you know, I just, I was performing. And this is what I've seen in my life. I'm 60 years old now. I see a lot of Christians performing or so-called Christians performing. Well, I perform for God. And this pleases God if I perform for God. No, it doesn't please God for you to perform for God. What pleases God is that you Love Him with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. But the guy just read some passage and bam! I heard God. It was the first time I heard Him. I heard Him. And everything changed. And I realized that I had been converted at 28, not at 8 as I began to study and read my Bible. One theologian said it like this, we don't decide to be alive, we simply discover that we are. Now, this might be a challenge for some of you, and you might not understand or embrace that, but it's biblically accurate. The wind blows. What did Jesus say? Wherever it will. You don't know where it comes from. When the wind blows, it's a miraculous and beautiful and awesome thing. And you know, sitting there sitting there tonight, you know. You know if you love Jesus or not. You know. I, I can't see your heart. You can't even see my heart. I mean, I'm up here preaching, but I might just be putting on a show. You know, I might just be in this, you know, as a profession. I, I can't see your heart. You can't see my heart, but God sees the heart. Do you love Him? That's always the question. Do you love Jesus Christ? No other question matters. I'm not going to ask you, did you pray the magic prayer? Did you do the magic, magic ordinance? I'm not ever going to ask you that. Do you love Christ? Do you love Him supremely? Are you a disciple? Are you obeying Him? This is what Christianity always looks like on the pages 
of Scripture. It's the born-again thing. It's the born-of-the-Spirit thing. Jesus said you do not know where the wind comes from and you don't know where it's going. That is how it always is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. This is Old Testament, New Testament. The Old Testament prophet said, you know, God said through them, the Ezekiel and, and, and Jeremiah, I'll remove that heart of stone and I'll give you a heart of flesh. It's the supernatural thing that God has always done in the lives of His people. So, in John 3, Jesus is giving us a picture of the, of, of the divine side of, of salvation. This sovereign side of salvation. But of course, we know what the Bible talks The other side of, of this is what? You and I must respond, Right? There's this sovereign aspect of salvation and then there is the responsibility of man to respond. You must respond. You must exercise the gift of faith that God has given. You must confess and believe. You must do these things. It's what we've been talking about in the book of James. As James has been telling us over and over and over and over, that real Christianity, it's always spilling out into the life. It always spills out into the life. Nobody's a secret Christian. Uh, nobody in your orbit is confused. They all know you're a Christian. You can't help it. It spills out. It's on your tongue. It's in your hands. It's on your feet. It's in your deeds. It's what you do. It's how you live. It's what you watch. It's where you go. It's where you won't go. Everybody knows you're a Christian. You smell like God, right? You smell like God, as Paul told the Corinthians. You smell like God. So, James has been making much of this. He, he, he's, he's just given us a great rundown of what it looks like. What it really looks like to belong to God. And James is calling us to all those things that, that I, I mentioned at the outset. He's calling us to, to choose God, to call upon God, to seek God, to, to enter in with God, to deny ourselves, to believe, to receive, to repent, to obey, to love Jesus enough to give up everything. This is God's invitation. And we, we're going to get one of God's greatest invitations in these three or four verses tonight. And I hope that we will give them due consideration. James has been saying all along that real Christians are different. If we're real Christians, every, everything changes. And so just by way of review, James chapter 1 through James chapter 4, real Christians respond differently in their trials and in their temptations than unbelievers do. That's chapter 1. We can see, a, we, we know a real Christian because they respond to the Word of God. We are doers, albeit imperfectly. We are doers. We do the Word. We don't just talk about it. We don't just hear it. As James talked about in chapter 1 and chapter 2, we're not just hearers, and then we're not just talkers. We actually do the Word. A real Christian, you can tell a real Christian by the way they deal with others. They deal with others in compassion and impartiality. Chapter 2 of James. A real Christian is seen in the fact that our faith is visible. It is visible. It is palpable. It is conspicuous. Again, everybody in our orbit knows that we love Jesus above all. And we are His disciple. We don't just merely go to church on Sunday if it's convenient. He is our God and our Savior and we love Him above all things. It's what it always means to be a Christian. I know it's been dumbed down in many churches. 
many denominations. But this is what it always looks like on pages of Scripture. Continuing this review, uh, we can tell a, a Christian by the way they guard their tongue, the, the way they use their speech. We talked about that a couple of weeks ago, James chapter 3. We can tell a real Christian by the way in that they live by the wisdom of God. The beginning of wisdom is what? The fear of the Lord. You can see it in someone's life. You can hear it in their speech. And last week we talked about the fact that you can tell a real Christian because they are no longer friends of the world. That brought us into chapter 4. We are no longer friends of the world. And I want to remind you, James is doing what every good preacher does. He's preaching to the wheat and to the tares. Every preacher knows when he preaches, even in a, a, a group this small, I know that there are wheat and tares. There are true believers here and there are, are those posing as true believers or maybe there's just someone who, who wandered in who, who, who's not quite sure about Christianity, right? But Jesus told us there'll always be this way. There'll always be wheat and tares. And, and James is addressing both. He's addressing both. He's warning those who are merely playing religion with God and he is exhorting true believers to go on in their sanctification. Both of these things here are both of these things are clearly um, evident in verses seven through ten, and that's what I want to focus on tonight. Verses seven through ten. Last week we left off at verse six of chapter four. God is opposed to the proud, but He gives grace to the humble. It reminds me of one of my favorite verses. Um, we use it a lot. I've used it a lot when I teach on hard things, because people struggle with hard things from the Bible. You know. If you go to the church, if you go to a church and all they ever teach is, are the are the happy things and the things that go down easy and yeah, you know you got a problem because there are hard things in the Bible. We talked about this several weeks ago. There, there's always gravity and gladness. There, it, it's just true in the Bible. If you read your Bible, there's always gravity and there's always gladness. But Isaiah 66:2, God says, "But this is the one I will look to. This one I will look to him who is humble and contrite of spirit." and who trembles at My Word. So I'm just going to stop and ask, do you tremble at God's Word? <laughs> do you tremble at the Word of God? And, and, and what I mean by that is, is um, do you respect what God has said and do you do what God has said? Again, albeit imperfectly. None of us are perfect. But do you respect what God has said and do you employ the words of God in your life? Are they incarnate in your life? It's what the Lord's talking about. James says God is opposed to the proud, but He gives grace to the humble. And then in verses 7-10, through 10, James invites us into this God-pleasing humility. This is what God-pleasing humility looks like, 7-10. through 10. It's very simple. I don't even really need to preach this. This is, this is so obvious. I don't know that I have to, to say a whole lot about it. James is inviting us into God-pleasing humility. He fleshes out what God-pleasing humility looks like. It looks like James chapter 4, verses 7 through 10. Again, it's both an exhortation to the Christian to go on in their sanctification, and it's an invitation to unbelievers to come to God. It's both of these things. James is preaching to the believer. He's preaching to the unbeliever. Both of these things are applicable as we look at these four verses. Let me just reread seven through ten. And I want you to hear the I want you to hear the evangelistic appeal, and I want you to hear the call to sanctification. You can hear both of them. Listen. 
God says, Submit therefore to God, resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be miserable and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned into mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves in the presence of the Lord, and he will exalt you. James tells us what God-pleasing humility looks like. We know if we know our Bibles and if we casually observe what's going on in the world that men have, in a breathtaking way, de declared their independence from God. The arrogance of man before God is breathtaking to me. The indifference of man to God is breathtaking to me. Oh, all that I am, all that I have, all that I see is from the benevolent hand of God, but I don't give Him... You know, the time of day. I just take it all for granted. I could care less about God. It permeates the culture, doesn't it? It permeates the media. Where's God on the front page? You know, the front page of the news should say, God is awesome! It should say it every day. And we're so used through the absence of God in the culture, that it, it doesn't strike us as odd, that it doesn't say, Jesus Christ is a Savior! On the front page, every day, every day you sign on to the internet, it ought to say, Jesus Christ offers salvation to whomever will believe. Shouldn't that be the headline? Why is it not the headline? <laughs> Men are in rebellion against God. Men are in rebellion against God. We know what the Bible teaches us. Romans chapter 1 uh, through chapter 3, just a few excerpts. Even though they knew God, they did not honor God nor give Him thanks. They exchanged the glory of God for lesser things. They exchanged the truth of God for a lie. They are haters of God. They are insolent. They are arrogant. They are boastful. There is none who seek for God, not even one. You know, I hear it all the time as a pastor. People say, well, you know, uh, I know that such and such is seeking for God. They're looking for God. Or, or in this religion, this, this other religion, they're really seeking for God. No, they're not. If you believe your Bible, they're not. They're not seeking for God. The Bible says nobody seeks for God. Not one person seeks for God. Now, I know that this, is, this runs counter to the PC message out in the, out in the world that we're, we're all children of God and we're all seeking God and we just want to do good and... Beloved, you've you got to understand, you, when you study the Bible, you've got to understand what it says about God, but you've got to also understand what it says about us, what it says about mankind. It's important that we understand these things. God says He's opposed to the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Chapter 4, verse 6. So God invites rebellious man, and I've just painted that picture. He invites rebellious man into the paramount expression of humility, and that's submission of the creature before the Creator. God invites the rebel to come. He shouldn't. Yeah, some of you have never thought about this, I bet. <laughs> God never offered the angels a Savior. They rebelled too. Right? A third of the angels rebelled against God. He never offered them a Savior. He doesn't owe you a Savior. He doesn't owe anyone a Savior. But there He is, right? 
There he is on the cross. It's a breathtaking proposition. I got to ask you, how can you live your Christianity small? How can you profess to be a Christian and be ashamed? How can you profess to be a Christian and be intimidated? Listen, I, I, I get it in one sense. We're, we, we're struggling with our sin nature and with our flesh. I get it. I'm not saying I don't have weak moments. I'm not saying that. But I'm saying if you think deeply about what the Bible's saying to us, if you think deeply about how God has loved you, if you think deeply about it, how can you remain the same? You can't. It's impossible. So you see this, this word here, verse 7, submit therefore to God. It means to surrender, to yield, or subject oneself to the authority of God. It's comparable. It's not a passive thing. It's comparable to volunteer, uh, volunteer, uh, voluntarily enlisting in the army. That's kind of the sense of it. I give myself to submission. I'm under God's authority. I give myself to God and I'm under His authority. I'm not calling the shots anymore. I submit to God. And as we talked about last week, if we submit to God, we realize that's where our true joy is and our true happiness is. Some of you still think you can find your happiness independent of God. Or you can kind of go off on your own and just kind of hope God blesses what you're doing. Beloved, that's always a huge mistake. Submit yourself to God. And He'll reveal to you the, the, the dreams that He's planted deep within your heart that you don't even know about yet. This is what we've been talking about the last couple of weeks. One English translation here says, so give yourself completely to God. Give yourself completely to God. It's what Paul did on the road to Damascus. What did he say? Well, what magic prayer do I need to pray? Or what magic ordinance do I need to do? No, what did Paul say to Jesus? He said, what shall I do, Lord? What shall I do? He knew immediately that he'd met God and everything would change. What shall I do? Paul immediately submitted himself to the authority of Jesus Christ. And I just got to ask you, have you really done that? Or is he a religious icon to you? Have you submitted to the authority of Jesus Christ? Is he Lord in your relationships? Is he Lord in your marriage? Is he Lord at the job? Is he Lord at the university? Is he Lord in your studies? Is he Lord in your leisure? Is he Lord when you're on the internet? Is he Lord? That's real Christianity, beloved. Submit yourself, therefore, to God. Do you hear the evangelism in it? And do you hear the call to sanctification in it? <laughs> it's, they're, both, they're both there. It made me think of the rich young ruler, you know, uh, over there in, in Mark 10. He ran up to Jesus. He said, man, what must I do to be saved? And Jesus said, you know, Jesus could see his heart. And the, the guy was saying, well, man, I've done everything. Man, I keep the law. I'm a great, you know, I'm a great religious guy. I go down to the, the temple all the time. I do all the stuff I'm supposed to do. Jesus could look into his heart. Jesus saw that he loved money. And he said, Jesus said, well, I'll tell you what. You, you go sell all that you have and come. Come follow me. What happened? Someone tell me. The man was what? Grieved. Why was he grieved? He couldn't go with Jesus. Why? Because he loved his money too much. I fear that maybe some of us in here love something else too much. We can't really go with Christ. He would have us, but we won't go with Him because we love something else too much. Right now, today, I love something else too much. James says, submit yourself to God. And as I said last week, 
<laughs> and as we've been saying, uh, really, in, especially in young adult Bible study, when you submit yourself to God, you find yourself in God. And when you find yourself in God, you find yourself. You find out who you're supposed to be. You find out who God designed you to be. Look what else it says here, second part of verse 7. Submit yourself therefore to God and resist the devil. And what will the devil do? He will flee from you. Know, uh, from you. Um, I think most of you probably know there are two realms of authority in the world. Obviously, God's is supreme, but there are two realms of authority. I think mankind thinks there's a third. They think it's, mankind thinks it's Him. But if we actually read our Bibles, we understand that... Well, let me just read it to you. We're either walking with Jesus, or Ephesians 2.2 says, we're walking according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, which is a reference to Satan. Mankind, mankind is either under the authority of God and walking in submission to that authority, or he is under the authority of little g God of this world. There's no middle place to be. I, again, I know this is politically incorrect, but there's no middle place to be. There's no religious, lukewarm place to be. Magic prayer is not going to keep you out of hell. And a magic ordinance is not going to keep you out of hell if you're not in relationship with Jesus Christ. Remember what Jesus said in the Gospels? He said, if you are not... Let me just get it right. He says, He who is not with Me is against Me, and he who does not gather with Me scatters. You get it? He scatters. If you're not My disciple, you're scattering. I don't care if you're the Pope or the Patriarch or the preacher on the corner. If you're not Mine, you're really scattering. If you're not with Me, you're against Me. All man-made religion is against Christ. It is against Christ. It is demonic. Man-made religion is demonic. It is against Christ. It's a clear teaching of Scripture. But Satan will flee. Submit yourself to God and he'll flee from the true believer. Satan can't compete with Jesus. I love that great line. You know, the old, the old hymn uh, written by Martin Luther. Um, a mighty fortress is our God. Luther says, The prince of darkness grim, we tremble not for him, for lo, his doom is sure. One little word will fail him. Satan will flee from us. This is an awesome promise from God. We will draw near to Him. He will draw near to us. Of course, if we know our Bibles, we understand that God is out in front of us on this. If we have actually drawn near to God, what do we know is true from John chapter 6? If we're drawing near to God, what do we know is already true? What has already happened? He's already drawn us to Himself. God is out in front of us. You know, I know we all know how it was for me. I thought I'd, I'd stumbled on the God, man. I thought I'd, I was smart enough to figure it out. I, I, I still remember thinking this way. Then when I studied my Bible, I realized it was Him all the time. He came after me. He came after me. So, when we see this, this seeking thing, I love it. We, the, the Christian is the sought-for seeker, right? We're the sought-for seeker. <laughs> I love that. Yeah, we are the sought-for seeker. Jeremiah 29.13, I share this a lot when, my, when I'm doing evangelism because I don't, I don't have a prayer to pull out of my pocket and say, well, pray this prayer and 
you're in. I don't, I don't, that's not what the Bible teaches, so I can't in good conscience say that to somebody. But what I can in good conscience say to somebody is Jeremiah 29.13. God says, if you seek Me and find Me, you will seek Me and find Me when you search for Me with all your heart. And I will be found by you, declares the Lord. Listen to the message paraphrase of that. I love it. It says, when you get serious about finding Me and want it more than anything else, I'll make sure you won't be disappointed. Every true seeker will find God. Every true seeker will find Christ. He will be found by His people. He will be found. What a great promise. What a great, great promise. We've said it a hundred times from this pulpit. Real Christianity is not preeminently doctrinal, which is important. It's not liturgical. It's not ceremonial. It is relational. Submit therefore to God. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. Draw near to God and he will draw near to you. And then he says, cleanse your hands, you sinners. Purify your hearts, you double-minded. It reminded me of a verse over in Isaiah 59, 1 and 2. God says, your iniquities have made a separation between you and your God. Your sins have hidden his face from you so that He does not hear. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts. Why hands? Why hands? It's just a symbol of of how you're living and what you're doing and how you're laboring. It's just a symbol. God says, cleanse your hands. Purify your hearts, you double-minded. You you remember the great... uh, the great imagery in Pilgrim's Progress, the double-minded man. You remember his name? His name was Mr. Facing Both Ways. Do you know some people like that? They call themselves Christians, but they're really looking at the world and sometimes trying to look in the church and they're not quite sure which day, well, today I'm going to go this way. You, you, you know what I'm talking about, right? Mr. Facing Both Ways. The double-minded man or woman. or The little Greek here is to be two-souled. To be two-souled. S-O-U-L-E-D. So, for the unbeliever, James is saying, repent of your sins and truly come to Jesus. For the believer, James is saying, go on in your sanctification. So we got an evangelistic appeal here and an exhortation to sanctification. Both of these things are happening in these four Verses, verse 9, be miserable, mourn, weep, let your joy be turned to gloom. Okay, we've been talking about this the last few weeks. That's not going to be preached in happy church. You're not going to hear that in happy church. But what is God saying to His people? What is God saying to His people about mourning? What is He saying? He's saying, be miserable and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy be turned to gloom. It's something we talked about last week in Young Adult Bible Study, Ecclesiastes 3. There is a time to weep. There is a time to mourn. And when you are separated from God by your sin, it is time to mourn. So, it's part of the evangelistic appeal, right? Sinner! Your sin has separated you from God. Mourn! You have missed the purpose for which you were created, which is to know God and to walk with God and to love God and to fellowship with God. Mourn and grieve! And it's not hard for a lot of sinners to mourn and grieve. They're already in despair. 
Most of them are already in despair. They may be putting on a good front for you, but most of them are in silent despair because they cannot find the satisfaction they know they were created for. His name is Jesus Christ. And for the Christian, for the Christian, yes, mourn for your sin. Confess it. And God is faithful and just to cleanse us of our our sin, right? So both of these things are true for the unbeliever and for the believer. I like David in Psalm 38. David is lamenting over his sin. And he talks about, he uses these words. He says, he calls him a burden. And he's wounded. He's bowed down. He's mourning. He's crushed in spirit. He's groaning. uh, And he's failing in strength. You remember Peter, uh, after he denied the Lord Jesus, he was weeping and grieving over his sin. Believers weep and grieve over their sin that has quenched the Spirit of God within them. Some of you, possibly, who are genuine believers and you've stumbled into sin, God is calling you out tonight. He's calling you out tonight. Unbeliever, He's calling you to Himself. Believer, He's calling you deeper. I love these four verses. Listen, just use these four verses next time you do evangelism. Just just use these four verses. Unbeliever, come to God. Believer, go on with God. It's really what's being said here. It is really what's being said here. Verse 10, humble yourselves in the presence of the Lord and He will exalt you. What a great promise. You guys know the same thing is said over in 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 6. Humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God that He may exalt you at the proper time. It's what God does. He takes broken, humble, contrite, penitent sinners and through the finished work of Jesus, He exalts us. It's a scandal for the whole world. It's a scandal in the cosmos that Jesus Christ would die for sinners. It's a scandal. Satan hates it. And much of the world hates it. Or they're at least indifferent to it. <laughs> it's a scandal. We, we, listen, you know what you were before God got involved with you, right? You know what you were, right? I love this thought. You were disassembled particles of dust, Right? That's what you are apart from God. You didn't evolve from anything quite so uh, interesting as a chimp. You were disassembled particles of dust. That's who you were. And then God made you into blessing. Or God made you into Joyce. God made you into Elijah. Disassembled particles of dust. You were nothing. And God created a being out of you. A living, breathing, thinking, dreaming, hoping, loving being. He did that. I love this. From dust to glory, beloved. From dust to glory. There ought to be 10,000 people in here. Dust to glory. From, 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 uh, from, From rebel to sons, right? From rebel to sons and daughters. From enemies to co-heirs. It's unbelievable. I tell people all the time, if, if God weren't telling me these things, I wouldn't believe any of it. It sounds too fantastic. It just sounds like fiction. It sounds like a fairy tale. But because I know God wrote this, and God gave us this, and God says it in here, I know it's true. 
from dust to glory for Jim Albright. It's breathtaking. I know what I deserve. I know what I deserve. I know where I should go. And I presume the rest of you understand that you should come under the judgment of God as well. It reminds me of the prodigal son, and I'm done. It reminds me of the prodigal son, right? You know the story, right? He said, man, I've had it with my dad. I'm just going to take my stuff and go. And he went and he came into poverty. He spent all of his inheritance on easy living. And, and what happened? He was in the pigsty. And what happened? Someone tell me. He, and he was in the pigsty. And, and the Bible says this interesting thing. It says, when he came to himself, or when he came to his senses, he realized it was far better with his father. And, his fa- and he returns to his father. And what is his father doing? His father's on the lookout, right? His father's on the lookout. And he sees him coming. And bam, he's off. Listen, beloved, you have no... Uh, what's the word I'm looking for? You have no hesitant Savior. You have an eager Savior. You have no reluctant Savior. And the father runs off to the boy. And he puts on a new robe. He gives him a ring. And he gives him a kid to have a party with his friends. And he's happy. The father's happy. This wayward boy has come home. And so, some of you here tonight, some of you may not be true believers. You may be nominally Christian. You may have grown up in the church. You may be like me. My first 28 years in the church. I invite you to submit to God, to draw near to God, to cleanse your hands, to mourn over your sin, and to humble yourselves in the presence of the Lord. If you're here tonight and you're a nominal Christian or you're an unbeliever, I invite you to come to Jesus. Don't ever, don't, don't ever say that you weren't invited to come to Christ. Don't ever say that you never got the invitation. And I don't do big invitations. You guys know that. The Word of God is enough invitation and the Spirit of God is enough invitation. It's not up to me to work you up into an emotional lather. That's not my job. My job is to present the truth to you and it's between you and God. But I invite you, if you are nominally Christian or if you are an unbeliever, I invite you to come to Christ. I invite you to come to Christ. If you have questions about that, please come and speak with me. And then for you, believer, God says, come on! God says, go on! Go on in your sanctification! We're supposed to cooperate with the Holy Spirit in our sanctification. God is saying, come on! Continue to submit yourself to My authority. Continue to draw near to Me. Continue to confess and deal with the sin in your life. Continue to humble yourself before Me. And back to the prodigal son. (laughs) And the father is delighted to see you come. He's delighted to see you come. What an awesome, what an awesome truth, right? An awesome truth. We have no reluctant Savior. We have a father who is eager to save. We have a father who is eager to love us and to fellowship with us. And to give us every good thing. And by that, I would never demean God by saying health, wealth, and prosperity. I would never demean the Gospel by saying that. 
I would say He gives us every good thing which is all of Himself. It's all of Himself. All of Himself. And I'll say this and I'm done. It will take you forever to get to the end of Jesus Christ. It will take you forever to discover just how beautiful and awesome and satisfying Him He is. It will take you a billion eternities, which is to say you'll never understand what an awesome God He is. Never fully understand. This will be the, this will be the eternal adventure, right? <laughs> Learning God, knowing God, loving God. Let's pray. Lord, we thank You for this great text. We thank You for this invitation to those who do not believe, those who are not converted. And we thank You for this invitation to move on in our sanctification for every believer here. Simple things. Very simple things. Thank You, Father, for this Word. Thank You, Holy Spirit, that You have called us to salvation and or called us deeper into sanctification. Thank You, Father. We pray this in the matchless name of Jesus. Amen.